Hey everyone, my online course on the rehabilitation of the fitness athlete with Dan Pope is on sale this week. If you want to work with higher level fitness athletes and help people get back into the gym after an injury, this is the course for you. Head to MikeRandall.com slash fitathlete to learn more and sign up this week. On this episode of the Ask Mike Reynolds Show, we talk about shoulder dislocations from weight training. We talk about how we restore chronic weakness and atrophy. And we talk about some potentially unsafe PT treatments. The Ask Mike Reynolds Show. Helping people feel better, move better, and perform better. Welcome back, everybody. We're sorry. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of the Ask Mike Reynolds Show. We're up at Champion PT and Performance up in Boston. Lenny McCrina, Dave Tilly, Dan Pope, Mike Scaduto, all, 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 all here for this episode. Our awesome students. Whose turn is it? Tally who? Awesome. Hello. We have Zach Tally from Regis and Logan Genghis Klon from Wash U in St. Louis. Boom. Nailed it. <laughs> Got it. Tally-ho, what do we got for questions today? Let's start with Luca from Toronto. Hey, Mike and the team. I'm a physiotherapist from Toronto, Canada, and I've seen a recent influx of shoulder dislocations in young males with a history of recently starting weightlifting. Hoping to get your thoughts on mechanisms behind the potential correlation and possible preventative measures that could be introduced. All right, good question here for Dan and Dave. Dan and Dave. <laughs> what Olympics was that? All right, we gotta stay on cue for this one. Dead and elbows. Yeah, right. Yeah, the discussions is like the Olympics in the eighties. All right, so so this is a good question here. Increase in shoulder dislocations from weightlifting, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's not a lot of things you can do to weightlift. What do you think he's talking about? Well, I I don't see a ton of this, but I've heard some of this happening. One of my friends actually had dislocation from snatching. Um, so catching the weight here potentially and having the weight pushed down inferiorly, sometimes people will dislocate from that, um, but I don't see it a ton. Or missing it, missing it, losing balance or something. That was the only thing my brain thought of yeah. was a snatch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly it could be some other things, but like a dislocation from weight training, he's seeing a lot of them. Sounds like you got a good box in there. Weird, uh, really <laughs> <not bad. laughs> I think you should hand out cards. Um, but what, what do you think? Why? What, what else? What other reason? What other yeah. way so, can you dislocate? I think that the simple, like something so fast and so ballistic as a snatch, is an unbelievably complex movement, and there's a ton of steps mechanically that have to go right to have weight, you know, be accepted in the receiving position really well. And I think that most people who are new to weightlifting and don't understand how long Olympic weightlifters train to just develop baseline awareness of these positions um, can sometimes jump a lot of steps. And I think that the few dislocations that I've seen are people who are trying to hang on to snatches and save them and maybe don't have the proper mobility in their hips and their ankles to receive the weight at the bottom of their squat. So what happens is they get to the last position, maybe they're missing five degrees of ankle dorsiflexion, and instead of just knowing the weight's gone, they hang on to it, try to stand up, and they get a lot of relative you know, external rotation of the shoulder, internal rotation, and anterior apprehension, and that's when people start to get some funky stuff going on. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, what's tough is that it's probably the coaches. I don't want to say, I'm not going to throw it on CrossFit coaches and say CrossFit is bad, but something like Olympic weightlifting, especially a snatch, is, is very challenging to do, right? You're taking individuals that maybe have no history of weightlifting and ask them to do probably the most challenging lift that I could think of, yeah. right? It takes a ton of flexibility, a ton of range of motion, a lot of consistent practice. You get people who just want to get in shape. They might not be coming every day of the week. They're probably snatching on you know week one and then not again until week five. You know They're not necessarily going to be ready. They're going to be loading 
the bar up. Maybe they're doing it in a fatigue state. So you're not really following those steps to have good foundations for your snatch. And then I'm guessing that people are probably going a little too heavy. They try to catch something when they shouldn't have, and all of a sudden they hurt their shoulder because yep. of it. You know, yep. makes total sense. I mean, yeah. I, uh, that would be I mean, that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I can't imagine any other reasons. It's just. Yes. You know, lack of, of good coaching of technique and pushing through when they shouldn't be. I mean, it makes total sense. So, what do we got, Genghis? You up? Yep. All right, we got Sean from Tallahassee. How do you handle a post arthroscopic patellar tendinosis with severe quad atrophy in a period of complete quad shutdown? Do you use eccentrics or heavy, slow resistance program? I like so eccentrics or just a slow heavy loading phase for, let's say, let's even just call it a chronic tendinopathy, it sounds like. This one sounds post-operative, but he's got he's had months and months and months, it sounds like, of quad weakness. So what do you think? What gets him back? Concentric training, or maybe that's the wrong word, but like, you know, heavy, heavy load. I mean, let's even break it down. Like, what do we do? Is this like a high rep kind of scheme? Is this a low rep scheme? Is this an emphasis on eccentrics? What do you do with someone that has chronic loss of quad strength? Because we see this a lot. lot of stuff. We see this a lot, right? I mean, you see either a post-surgical person, like, you know, it doesn't even have to be a tendinopathy. It could be an ACL, right? It could be somebody that's just had knee pain for years, and they're just super weak. What's What are some tricks we do to get them uh, stronger as fast as we can? Who wants to start? <clears throat> you guys are fighting on this one. I, like yeah. I think initially you just need really good neuromuscular control. And one of the things I tell my patients is, like, if you want to be a really good painter, you're going to paint all day, every day. You're not going to just do, like, 30 sets once a day of painting. You're not going to get very good at it. Like painting a room or, like, a, like an artistic like drawing? Like a Van Gogh <laughs> type guy. Okay, know? gotcha. I'm not a great artist. <laughs> um, anyway, I think you just need that, that quad to fire. So the more often you can use it, the better. And I tell patients to try to do lots and lots and lots of frequent <laughs> contraction. Um, which is kind of cool because I think that what we're finding now is that, uh, and Brett Contreras has kind of alluded to this, but if you actually think about firing the muscle and getting that contract better, actually creates more tension in the muscle and gets it to, to, get, to grow up a little bit more so than not. So I think that post-surgically, we would be careful. We want to get that muscle firing as much as possible. We have to be careful of things like uh, pain because that may inhibit the muscle and create more swelling. So we have to get as much contraction as possible early on. But then after that, maybe you guys can jump in a little bit more is that, I would throw everything at it. I mean, I can't just say, like, yeah. only do eccentrics, only do concentrics. Do everything yeah. and just train right. that person. I mean, I would do NMES. Yeah. I would do probably blood flow restriction. I'm doing isolated concentric eccentric. So a knee extension machine, I'm fine with that in these situations, like an ACL. I mean, you're, yeah. you're loading with a squat. You, you know, you can play with, uh, you know, up and down times, like deceleration. So the, uh, the eccentric portion going a little slower than the concentric and obviously a ton of hip stuff. But it sounds like... Whenever I have somebody that's had chronic loss of muscle, I usually, in my head, I'm thinking, however long that they've had this atrophy, multiply it by three, and that's when you'll probably wow. get some change back. Is that a thing? I've never heard I of that. I think so. That's a lending So, like, if they've had long. three months of atrophy, you're going to need nine months to get them back, which kind of fits a lot of what we see if I you like think about that. it. So I like that. I hope somebody somebody please put a picture of Lenny and and this quote <laughs> with Lenny Macrina on Instagram. That's like uh, gold right there. That's a solid I would, one. Uh, I would look into that and I'm pretty sure because I used to quote two times and then I saw a paper and I don't remember where it was. It said three times. I was like, oh that's crazy. I thought I was too conservative three times is so putting this together it sure sounds like if you're doing an eccentric heavy program just because this person had tendinopathy, the real issue is not the tendinopathy 
the real issue is the is the really chronic quad atrophy and weakness there. So if you're doing this heavy eccentric protocol, that's going to cause a lot of problems. That's, or not problems. It's going to cause a lot of like pain and discomfort. It's going to require some rest time, and that doesn't feed into the like what Dan was saying. Was like you need a lot of reps. You need a lot of you need you need to get that muscle back. So it sure seems like to me the focus should be on lots of exercises with high frequency to kind of start that process, right? And I don't know, that's, I don't know. Dave, you got anything else you want to add? No, I agree. I think consistency and just doing it a ton is the first step. And then after that, then you can play around with different sets and reps and kind of loading paradigms to figure out like, okay, now we push adaption further. Yeah, to me, this sounds like a basic linear load. Just go, go, go. Just like have a, a generic set of reps and just keep going with loading every week. Load, load, load and keep going. Then when you get to the point where, you know, they, they plateau or something on that, you can get fancy with your set rep schemes or focus on eccentrics. But, man, this 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 person's got a ways to go. As PTs, so. we're looking for quick changes and we get annoyed. Like if they, we did something and the next visit they don't have this huge burst in quad structure. And you just got to keep focus on the long term. It's, I mean, we're, yeah. we want quick changes, even at PTs, never mind the, the person who's sitting there getting the treatment. So you got to yeah. stick with the plan. And, and remember, the Macrina 3X. Uh, uh, Works with draft teams, too. Atrophy. <laughs> <laughs> Next. Yeah. What do we got, Tally-ho? Mike from Texas. How would you address a more experienced therapist performing borderline unsafe techniques on patients when management is not concerned with the treatment? An example. example, manipulating the neck of cervical fusion patients to improve the doctor's alignment or disregarding blood pressures exceeding 190 over 110. Yeah, this is a pent-up anger question. I know. I was, I was actually going to start and be like, are they really unsafe? Like, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe those are unsafe. So, all right, you have a younger clinician where the more experienced clinicians in the clinic are doing things that the younger clinician perceives as being unsafe, but management doesn't seem to mind. So I don't. I've never been in this environment. <laughs> so Dave, you haven't slammed your previous uh, place in a while. <laughs> yeah. no, it wasn't. It actually wasn't. That. No, they were good. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I experienced this in a few different settings. I won't say where. But it makes you a little uncomfortable, and you can also hear that the patient is maybe not responding well to some of the treatments. And I think that the first thing is to not do it in the open and in front of everybody, and you know, make it a public thing. But like separate time, maybe just ask politely, like, "Hey, I was just wondering, like, what you're doing with that?" Because like I've read some research that's conflicting, and you know, I got taught in school something different. Like, what are your thoughts on that? And maybe phrase it as a discussion and not as an attack. And then two is if you continuously try to have the conversation, it's still not happening. I mean, you can't control the people. All you can do is right. like, oh, those are my decisions on my clinical rationale. I'm going to do what I think is best. And if they continue to do that, then what can you do? Yeah, it sounds like it's eating you up a little bit there. Yeah, Dan, you have any experiences with calling? <laughs> any bad ex-colleagues? Yeah, I think some of it, too, is that it's not necessarily bad or dangerous necessarily. Like, I, I mean, I manipulate all my fusion necks uh, personally, so I don't think that's a problem. Uh, first and foremost, I'm just kidding. I don't. Do that. <laughs> I was gonna say I don't believe you. with a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a, a lot of it, a lot of times, is it comes down to maybe the therapist not doing something that's necessarily as evidence based, right? And then you maybe bring this up and ask them why they're doing it and say, "Hey, have you kind of read this paper or seen that?" And then people a lot of times are open to that. Maybe it's just a, a barrier to communication. I feel like a lot of times we don't speak well to other people. We don't communicate these things as well as we can. You get mad, yell at someone. That doesn't work. Everyone's mad, and the problems never fixed, right? So maybe work on the communication skills. 
Nonviolent Communication. It's the book I recommend for that, <laughs> which I think is very helpful. Is there a, a companion book that is violent communication? <laughs> like, like that, that sounds like that's the sequel. I think the other thing, and then now kind of Dave just hinted on this, but if you're really uncomfortable in the situation you're at and people are not responding to that and it's not the situation you want to be in, it's very toxic, go somewhere else. You know, life is short. Find a place where, you know, you jive with the people you work with. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mike, as a younger clinician, have we done anything? Yeah, have that we done anything feel... unsafe that made you feel? <laughs> made you feel unsafe in the work environment? No. Now that we're bringing it up, <laughs> I know, I, I, my, the, I'll be honest with you. The first thing I thought of with this question was that I, I I'm wondering if you have a prejudice in your head already as a young clinician as to what you are deeming unsafe. And maybe it's not necessarily unsafe. You're, you're talking about another experienced clinician that's been doing this for a long time. And they have the support for management technically that are kind of, I think management is going to stop anything that they feel is unsafe. No PT employer is going to allow something unsafe to happen. It's not good for business, right? So I, my first thought is maybe you got to take a step back as yourself, right? And, and think about, uh, are you too strongly opinionated that something is right, wrong, best, worst, that type of thing, and just kind of consider that from somebody with more experience. So it's just interesting. It sure sounds like some of your examples were, were like, oh, we're, on, we're on par. But that was my first thought. It was like, maybe you have to take a step back here too. But it, if you do feel that way, I think a, a conversation would be great. You know, why? What makes you think that way? What makes you do those things? You know, and I think just having a conversation with that person, try to learn from them, right? Maybe they have an answer for you that you're not expecting. Maybe they have something that they've read in the literature that you know, conflicts what you, what you think. So I would say don't go in there as a young clinician with like closed mindedness and just think that there's, you know, a best way, a right way or a wrong way. There's lots of gray in our profession. I feel like that was a good ending. That's a solid ending. To Happily ever after. So nice. thanks so much guys. Another great episode. Head to MikeRonald.com. Click on that podcast link and ask us questions. Head to iTunes, subscribe, rate, review, whatever else you do on that thing. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, head to MikeReynolds.com slash podcast and fill out the form to submit your question. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share this with your friends to help spread the word. It would really mean so much to us. Please check out all my online courses, articles, newsletter, and more at MikeReynolds.com. There's always a ton of great perks for my newsletter subscribers. And be sure to check for my other podcast, the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, where I go deep into topics and interview leaders within our field. See you on the next episode.